0: Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are starting a three-week series in the second epistle of Peter, and today we are looking at chapter one with a teaching entitled, Peter and the Participation of God. Whenever you come across the numbered books of the Bible, it's important to understand whether or not these books were meant to be read together or whether they were separate letters with a common author. For instance, the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel are meant to be read together, as are the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. 1st and 2nd Peter, though, are two letters who share a common author but were intended for very different audiences. And the author, most likely, did not intend for us to read them together. I tell you these things because 1 Peter is very different from 2 Peter. And it's important for us to keep these similarities and differences in our mind when we read both of these letters. The similarities are that we believe that these letters were written around the same time period. Sometime between 60 to 110 CE. The scholarly community is divided as to whether or not they think that Peter actually wrote these letters, and the people that think that Peter wrote these letters obviously give this an earlier date, sometime around 60, and those who think that it was a student of Peter's believe that this was written later between 100 to 110 CE. Outside of a common time period and a possible common author, the letters are vastly different. 1 Peter was written from Rome to churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These churches were suffering from some form of religious persecution, and the theme of 1 Peter is that you can experience the grace of God in the midst of suffering. On the other hand, 2 Peter is much more vague as far as who it's written to. There is no mention of an intended audience— And the author does not give us any clue as to where the author is writing this letter from. The one thing that we can tell for sure is that 2 Peter is written to people who are struggling with false teachers. So there are people who have leaders who are in positions of authority, and these leaders are lying to them. I know that's hard for us to imagine today, but work with me here and stretch your imagination to your limits, you know. So 2 Peter in chapter 2 is going to address what to do when you encounter people in authority who lie to you. But before Peter addresses this topic head on, he wants to remind everyone about the most essential idea behind faith and how it helps us deal with false teachers. This essential idea is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 15. We read, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours to the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of God who called us by God's own glory and goodness. Thus, God has given us through these things, God's precious and very great promises so that through them, you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust, evil desire, and may become participants in the divine nature. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone who lacks these things is short-sighted and blind and is forgetful of the cleansing of past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. Therefore, I intend to keep on reminding you of these things, though you know them already and are established in the truth that has come to you. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to refresh your memory, since I know that my death will come soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter wraps up this first chapter by talking about how he is close to death and how he says it is my dying wish that you will remember what I just wrote. Now, if you're like me, this is a problem because you and I cannot remember what Peter just wrote. There were a lot of biblical words in there, wasn't there? There was love and mutual affection and godliness and all sorts of other things. (laughs) And it's almost like you wish that Peter would have started the letter by saying, I'm dying. Please don't forget this. And then put this idea in bold, underlined capital letters. What is it that Peter was getting at And why is it so important to him that he says, after I'm dead and gone, please remember this? Well, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But rather than just read the words of Peter that didn't stick the first time, I want to illustrate the concept through two different stories. The first story revolves around what we do at Paradox. Now, every week at Paradox, we open the Bible and we study scripture in an effort to understand who God is and what God wants us to be in 2019 and beyond. Now, I have a distinct privilege and honor in being able to be the pastor of this congregation, and I love being able to preach from the word every week. Now, this has been going on since 2013 when some of us as part of a young adult group called the Shadow said we are going to commit to going through all of the books of the Bible over the next several years. And so since 2013, six years ago, we have gone through 48 books of the Bible and Second Peter is our 49th book. Can you believe it? And while you may have heard me say several things or this is the first podcast that you are listening to, I would like to share with you some of the things I've heard back in response to the sermons and the teachings that I've given through the books of the Bible over the past six years. Probably the most overwhelming comment that I get, the the comment that I hear the most, is I hear people express appreciation for the fact that we talk about the difficult stories in Scripture. We've done sermons on King Jehu, sermons on the sexism that Hosea holds so closely. We've done sermons on the problematic inconsistencies with Paul. We've done all of those things, and rather than shine away from those difficult parts, we go headlong into them. And so I hear back from people who listen to this podcast and who attend the church that they appreciate that we dive deeply into scripture. I also hear a lot about how people enjoy the maps that I present every week at Paradox. Um, You don't benefit from that on the Paradox podcast as much, but we present maps so that people can see those visually. And the other thing that I hear quite a bit is that people say they really enjoy the timelines that we lay out which I try my best to translate into ways that the podcast listeners can understand as well. The last two comments I hear quite frequently are about the visual aids I use and the desire to include and incorporate a diversity of religious art. So I try my best to find artists who have captured and pictured the divine, not just as a straight old white man, but as the embodiment of all in the fact that we believe that we are all created in the divine image. I want you to know that when I hear these five comments, that I am deeply appreciative for the kind words and support that you have shown toward my work and this church over the past six years. And while I receive the majority of credit, I do not deserve the majority of credit. Because every week I meet with six to ten volunteers who hear draft one of my sermon. And this diverse group of highly intelligent, smart people respond and give me feedback and push a sermon to a much higher level. We call this the Sermon Study Group, and I am very grateful for them. And if you have been appreciative of this podcast, they deserve a large portion of the credit. I am deeply appreciative for the kind words and support you have shown toward my work over the past six years. I need you to remember that as I talk to you about a comment that I often hear after I preach a sermon or produce a podcast. The comment I want for us to talk about today is the comment when someone comes up to me and says, I liked your sermon today. Now, if you have said this comment to me before, I want you to know that I am appreciative of that and I understand the intent behind it. But what we have to be honest about is that this can be a dangerous statement. And the reason that the innocuous statement of, I liked your sermon today can be dangerous is directly linked to what Peter wrote about in the first chapter of his second epistle. I liked your sermon today is a very kind sentiment, but can potentially be very dangerous. And to illustrate that, I would like to talk to you about Nintendo. Now, I have to tell you that I like Nintendo a lot. I had a Nintendo Entertainment System, a Super Nintendo, a Nintendo 64, a Nintendo GameCube, a Nintendo Wii, I skipped the Wii U just like everyone else, and I currently own a Nintendo Switch. Now, throughout my life as I grew up, from Nintendo to Super Nintendo to Nintendo 64, I would play as many hours as I could, or more honestly, until my mom let me. My mom and I disagreed about the hours of Nintendo consumption I should have per day. I thought it should be higher than my mom thought it should be and I remember having these arguments with my mom saying mom why can't I play more Nintendo today and my mom responded with a very similar response every time Craig I want you to have a life I want you to go outside I want you to practice something I want you to get good at things I want you to live Now, I was not the only person who had this disagreement with my mom in the 90s. And while most moms in the 90s thought, oh man, it must be so much easier to raise your kid in the 70s than the 90s when there was no Nintendo. Today in 2019, the problem has changed dramatically. And to talk about how the problem or the struggle between parents and kids and Nintendo consumption has changed, I need to talk about a man named PewDiePie. PewDiePie is a Swedish YouTube star of epic proportions. In fact, in August of 2019, PewDiePie became the first individual YouTube creator to hit 100 million subscribers. This is a man who has mastered YouTube as an individual in ways that no one else can even come close. 100 million subscribers. Not only that, but Variety Magazine on November 5, 2019, published an article about the most recognizable faces in the entire world for American young males. Variety Magazine published a study by the Morning Consult with Gen Z males ages 13 to 22 and asked them to recognize pictures of famous people. The most recognizable face among men who are 13 to 22 years old is none other than the Biebs, Justin Bieber. In second place, there was a tie between LeBron James and PewDiePie at 95% facial recognition. What makes it even more interesting is that the morning consult asked their subjects whether they were favorable to the person that they were seeing or not. And stunningly, PewDiePie had a higher favorability rating among young males than LeBron James. Now, I tell you this because what that means is that most Gen Z males in America today would rather have lunch with PewDiePie than LeBron James. Now, if you're over the age of 40, you may be saying, who or what is a PewDiePie? And what PewDiePie does that is so incredibly successful on YouTube is he plays video games and makes jokes and comments and stories about the video games he's playing. And young men, ages 13 to 22, tune in to watch these in mass. And what they do is they watch somebody else play a video game. And it makes me think of all of those conversations with my mom where she says, I want you to have a real life. Now I would respond by saying, well, at least I'm playing the game. I'm not sitting on YouTube like my other friends and watching someone else play the game. The most successful individual man on YouTube is a guy who makes a living playing video games and other people watch him play. All of this makes me think of a fantastic quote from the great Rob Bell when he once said, we live in a world in which a growing number of people have become deeply confused about the difference between observing someone else having a life and actually having a life. And we look at PewDiePie with all of these viewers watching him play video games that they themselves could play. We look at the way Nintendo has created these worlds where we have these artificial lives with artificial purposes. And we hear Rob Bell's quote where people are confused about the difference between observing someone else having a life and actually having a life, and we say, now there's an idea that captures the struggle of the modern world. But is this just relegated to the modern world? 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, who Christians profess to be the Son of God, walked among us. And because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it places this emphasis, this centrality of our faith around the life of Jesus. And when we look closely at how Jesus interacted with people, something strange starts to emerge. There's one instance in Luke chapter 10 when someone approaches Jesus and says, teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, because Jesus is the son of God, we assume that Jesus will give a very straightforward answer because that would be really helpful. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he responds to this question with two questions. He asks the person asking this question, what is written in the law? And what do you read there? Now, the man thinks about these questions, and he says, I believe that I should love my neighbor as myself. Jesus responds by saying, great, go and do that. But then the man wants to justify himself, and so he asks another question, and he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, rather than giving a straightforward answer, Jesus launches into one of the greatest stories ever told, the Good Samaritan. And wraps that up, not with an answer, but with a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The people answer Jesus, and Jesus tells them, that is who your neighbor is. A few chapters later in Luke chapter 18, Luke apparently wants us to get this pattern of Jesus because someone else approaches Jesus with the same question. They go before Jesus and ask him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, once again, doesn't answer. He responds with a question. Why do you call me good? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, people go before Jesus and ask him a straightforward question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Jesus doesn't respond to their their question, but instead asks a question back to them. Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? He then takes a coin and asks them a question about the coin. Whose head is this on a coin and whose title? They then say, it's the emperor. And he says, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In John chapter 11, we read about how Jesus was almost murdered at Bethany. He then decides he's going back to Bethany and the disciples think he's crazy. So they ask him a question. Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. Are you going back there again? And Jesus responds with a question. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? (laughs) During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asks those who are listening, For if you have love for those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Later on in that same sermon, Jesus asks the listeners, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In Luke chapter 12, he asks those who are listening, do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? And people respond in their heads, yes, of course, you're the prince of peace. Jesus answers his own question and says, no, I tell you, I do not come to bring peace, but rather division. In Luke 22, Jesus is asked in trial, are you then the son of God? And he responds by saying, you say that I am. In the next chapter, Pilate is asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply says, you say that I am. Not only that, but in Mark's gospel, as Jesus is on the cross, Jesus's last words are a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus dies. And in Mark's gospel, these are the last spoken words of Jesus. A question about the abandonment of God. When Christians study the life of Jesus closely, and they start to keep tally on what's going on, we find 183 different times that people went before Jesus And asked him a question. Of those 183 times, there are only 8 times that Jesus answered that question that he was asked. 8 out of 183. Not only that, but when you look at the way things worked in reverse, we count that there are 307 times that Jesus asked other people a question. Jesus asked nearly twice as many questions as people were asking him. And he answered less than 10% of the questions people asked him. I point all this out because I hear so often from people, I can't wait to get to heaven and finally get some answers. But when you look closely at the life of Jesus, who, remember, we think is the Son of God, I think a much healthier expectation would be that when you go before God with a question, God will respond to that question with another question. We sing a song, Jesus is the answer for the world today. I think a much better song would be Jesus is the question for the world today. Why does Jesus ask so many questions? I think the reason is is because if Rob Bell was walking around 2,000 years ago and he would have said this idea out loud, we live in a world in which a growing number of people have become deeply confused about the difference between observing someone else having a life and actually having a life, Jesus would have responded by saying, that's what I'm talking about. Because Jesus grew up in the shadow of a temple. And this temple was built on the biblical truth of Leviticus. And the message of the temple was, we have Leviticus, and Leviticus tells you how you can reconcile with God. Just go through the motions, just be part of whatever this system is, and God will make things right with you. And so they kept driving up prices because people couldn't get their heads around this idea that God was bigger than the temple. Along comes Jesus, And rather than pointing to the temple and saying, that temple is wrong or that temple is corrupt, Jesus instead speaks one-on-one with people and sometimes to larger groups and he starts asking them questions. And these questions are all about a personal ownership. What do you read in the law? What do you take it to mean? Jesus was trying to get people to think for themselves so they wouldn't be sheep to the larger religious system. In other words, Jesus challenged and inspired people to move from observing someone else having a life to actually having a life of their own. And through questions, Jesus is asking people, engage with me, wrestle with this idea, own this idea, think about what this idea means because it changes things. For so many people, spiritual authority throughout human history has been about ending the discussion. But for Jesus, spiritual authority begins in starting the discussion. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an invitation to participation. Now, Peter is one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. He walked around during Jesus' ministry with Jesus and saw Jesus asking people all of these questions. He saw how Jesus refused to give people nice and neat answers that people could either accept or reject, but instead saw Jesus lead people into deeper understanding of what life could actually be. After the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, Peter went out into the world and told people about this miraculous Son of God and what it means for us. He then writes down what the life of Jesus meant to him and what he hopes other people will take from it in 2 Peter chapter 1. And because Peter is a good writer, he starts his letter with his thesis statement. And this thesis statement is essential to people who are struggling with false teachers. And if you never get this opening concept, you will never be able to speak Or do or rebel against false teachers. So, Peter's thesis statement is found in verse 3 and verse 4 when he writes these words God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of God who called us by God's own glory and goodness. Thus God has given us through these things God's precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire and may become participants in the divine nature. I believe that Peter would highlight and bold that last line of verse 4 and say, that's it. That's the testimony that I want you to remember. Which brings us back to this statement, I liked your sermon today, which is said with the best of intentions, but can ultimately be very dangerous. When someone says, I liked your sermon today, the danger in that statement is that this is a statement of observation rather than participation. What Peter wants people to remember after he dies is the whole premise of this thing called life is that God creates you and then invites you to participate fully in it. To be a mere observer is to miss the entire message of the gospel. So when we talk about whether or not we like a sermon, what we are talking about ultimately is how we are spectators to what a pastor does. When we think about whether or not we like a sermon more than how we live what a sermon has to say, it's in that moment that we are consumers of mild entertainment rather than participants in the divine nature. Now, if Paradox Church's mission statement was to write sermons that you will like, then this would be a measure of success. Or if our mission statement was we want to put your butts in our seats, then this would be a measure of success. If our mission statement was to mildly entertain you with biblical stories and you responded by saying, I liked your sermon today, well, that would be a marker of success. But that's not what our church is about. Our church paradox exists to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. This is a statement of participation. And it asks you to stop viewing church as a place you go to to decide whether or not you like the sermon, but instead go out into the world and live a life that is different because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And these sermons and our kids' ministry and our music and our hospitality teams, we all work together to shift your focus away from attending church to participating in divine nature in your Everyday life. Now, I of course think that the sermon's important, but I view this sermon as a way to start the discussion in the same way that Jesus asked people questions 2,000 years ago. But what we need to do is shift the question away from how did Craig do this last week to how did I do this last week? How did I start to participate in the divine nature of life in brand new ways? And while I'm very appreciative when you enjoy a sermon and you tell me about it, the bigger goal here is to move us away from consuming the sermon to all of a sudden seeing how the gospel inspires me in all of the moments I am awake to live in the fullness of our humanity. I once saw a church sign that said, come meet the spirit this Sunday. Oh, that was so hard for me to read (laughs) And the reason why is because the message is the point is the church. But really what the church is, is the church is a dress rehearsal, a place where we look and talk about how we understand the gospel. We hopefully see the gospel advancing and then go out and live our lives filled with love and patience and forgiveness in ways that are inspiring. So what I hope to hear when we talk about sermons and preaching and Jesus and what it all means is that we shift our focus to talking about how the gospel has inspired us this past week. And maybe then we'll hear things like these following statements about the gospel inspiring us. The gospel inspired me this week to trust that God wastes nothing and that I can somehow turn any heartache I endure into something good. The gospel inspired me this past week to search for God in all things, in both love and suffering. The gospel inspired me this past week to see every human being I encounter as a valuable expression of our creator. The gospel inspired me this past week to see my daily work in whatever field I am in as holy. The gospel this past week inspired me to be more accepting of and more patient with my child who lives a life I do not understand. The gospel inspired me to be more accepting of my parents' imperfect humanity. The gospel this past week inspired me to be the first person to apologize. This past week, the gospel inspired me to speak up at my workplace when I saw women getting paid less than men for doing the same job. The gospel this past week inspired me to listen. The gospel this past week inspired me to see this strange mystery that we call life as an unlikely and beautiful gift from God. The gospel inspired me this week to start participating. My brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a generous invitation for all of us to participate in the fullness of our humanity. May we be inspired to love deeply, to risk freely, and to live lives of joyous meaning. May we stop consuming religion and start participating in the divine nature. And may we stop observing others having a life to actually having a life. My brothers and sisters, may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.